Hello and welcome back to the Liberty Blues. I'm Sean Osborne. And I'm John Phillips, attorney from the red state of Indiana. And today we're joined by uh, Jeff Moore. How you doing, Jeff? Good evening, Sean John. Thank you so much for having me both here. So uh, what, what, what office are you running for? You're in Indiana, right? That's correct. So I'm in Indiana and I am the libertarian candidate for Indiana Secretary of State. Oh, nice. So what, uh, who's the current Secretary of State? I'm out here in California, so I'm totally out of it. Sure. So let's rewind a bit. Uh, Indiana, as you may well have heard, is a pretty red state. Uh, there are blue mm-hmm. dots in some of the larger cities, namely Indianapolis and Fort Wayne. And the current Secretary of State is a Republican. Her name is Holly Sullivan. And she was appointed by our current governor, um, Governor Holcomb. And uh, the Republicans for the past decade plus have been appointing their secretaries of state sort of midterm and then having them run for election with the benefit of incumbency. And that's naturally a much safer position to to run for office. Sort of like playing a game of musical chairs where you get to pick your seat before the music stops. So that's an unfair advantage. And um, the Republicans had their convention uh, a couple few weeks ago, and there was a, the cha- one of the challenger candidates within the party, uh, Diego Morales, actually won the nomination. So Holly Sullivan will not be on the ballot in November, and my Republican opponent will be uh, Diego Morales. On the Democrat side, uh, there's a challenger there. Uh, her name is Destiny Wells. So it'll be a competitive three-way race. All right, cool. So I was talking to, uh, I was, were you at the convention in uh, Reno? I was not. I was busy campaigning. I think probably traveling a lot, eating a lot of fried uh, state or county <laughs> fair food and drinking these lemonade shakeups, which is lemon, lemon, water, sugar, and ice, which when you're out there talking with people in the Indiana summer heat, it's, it's quite refreshing. I bet it sounds it sounds like it. So I, w- I was talking to Donald Rainwater and he gave a really great speech at the convention in Reno. And he was mm-hmm. mentioning uh, the importance of your your race. He would say, <clears throat> I didn't catch it all. Uh, if you come in second place in so many state, uh, so many counties, you the libertarians will get to knock Republicans and Democrats off the board uh, election board in each county or something like that. Right. Right. There's definitely an impact there. So before I get into that, and and this sort of takes us down the rabbit hole of uh, state code and the wonkiness that's involved in that. uh, But big picture, the secretary of state's office is the third highest constitutional office in the state. It is written into our state constitution of 1816. And it's very clear that after the governor and lieutenant governor, the secretary of state is next in succession. Uh, And it's historically been an administrative or bureaucratic office. And more recently, it's been used as a launching point for the governorship. Uh, So it's important. And the office itself has four major divisions. Uh, The first, the one that everybody knows best, perhaps, is the elections division. And we'll certainly come back to why that's really, really important this cycle and and of increasing importance the last several election cycles. Uh, The second division is the business services division or the business services division 
And that's the unit that's in charge of chartering corporations and nonprofits and creating businesses or creating companies, the legal, uh, recognizing the legal entities that are businesses and nonprofits. Uh, so it's really focused about the smallest businesses, particularly that are getting licensed and established in the state. The third division is the, it regulates auto dealers within the state. And the fourth division uh, investigates white collar or securities fraud and securities crimes. So if you sell me a Target gift card, uh, it doesn't come under that purview. But if you sell me shares in a fraudulent company, then it might get investigated by that division of the Secretary of State's office. Uh-huh. So what what are those, uh, would, you, would you look most forward to having... Uh some say so in like uh obviously commerce and stuff so as from the libertarian perspective um they all are important uh the protecting people is one of the key roles of government so when a crime has been alleged or, or committed uh this is a key role of key function of government is to protect people who have been harmed by others and and find justice against those who have done wrong. So that part of the securities division is quite interesting to me personally. Uh, and then I've been a entrepreneur and uh, involved in clean tech and technology. I had a VR startup for many years, which I actually founded here in Indiana and went through as a, as a user, as a customer of the Secretary of State's website and, and office uh, for founding my company here. So I've seen it from that perspective. And to me personally, uh, helping small businesses get started and get off the ground is near and dear to my heart, but also where I see the future, right? We, that's how we create jobs. That's how we build economy. That's how we innovate. That's how we get to a better tomorrow from today. Um, so I'd love to get back to talking about how I can serve small businesses. And then last but not least, and, and this is what I think is topmost and foremost in everybody's minds, especially this election cycle, is the election process itself. Um, And when we have an event like January 6th and we see Americans using violence against each other because we've lost confidence and lost trust in our elections, the process is clearly broken. So we need to be able to have an election process that not only satisfies you, but your neighbor who may be less less trustful in the processes that we have. So Elections are how we agree to disagree in civil society. And if we lose that confidence, then we lose our civil society. That is first and foremost um, critical and paramount to everything else that we do. So that is absolutely the focus of my campaign and of my administration. It would sure be beautiful to see a different voice in there in between the Republicans and Democrats fighting with each other, coming up with some sort of solutions you know, like single issue coalitions, because you could work with people on both sides and uh, build some good bridges to get some stuff done. That's exactly right. And I think uh, you can compare solutions or lack thereof uh, against my opponents. I can be clear in saying that I am the only candidate on the ballot who wants you to leave the voting booth with a printed receipt for your vote. That way it'll show when and where you voted, not who you voted for, because that's secret still. Yeah. Um, but it will give you something that you yourself can audit, that you yourself can look <clears throat> just like getting a receipt uh, at the dry cleaner, right? You can go and track your order. And if there is a problem, you can then go find it and find out where the different pieces of that went to. So it's to restore power to you. So that way you can really manage uh, your vote. You can see where it's been received. You can see where it has been counted. You can see where it's been audited. 
Yeah, I suppose that would make it easy to check to see if there's anything fake too. That's right. And, and that's the receipts half the solution, right? That's the inclusive testing. If we, yeah. we get to exclusive testing, you know, that it's great that your receipt shows that your vote is counted. That's paramount. But what happens when somebody says 30,000 dead people voted? Okay, well, there's the other half of the solution. And that's an audit. And it's a complete audit. And it's a complete and independent audit. And it's a complete and independent audit of uh, all 92 counties before the elections are certified. So so right now, Indiana audits only five out of 92 counties. It doesn't even audit all of the races within those counties. And there's no indication of how those counties are chosen. Uh, and because Indiana has used, uh, or, or only 40% of votes cast in Indiana have any kind of paper trail whatsoever, that means that there's nothing to reconcile or, or even audit against paper for more than half the votes. So the, the votes that are actually audited are few and far between. And it's done by an organization called VSTOP that is out of Ball State University officially, but actually answers to the Secretary of State. So it's not an independent audit. It, it, and you would not be surprised when the audit report comes back and says, our boss did great. Uh, and that's the gist. Of it. In fact, yeah. the other part, uh, so it's, it's really an empty audit. That's that's what's most jarring. It's completely empty in that sense. We don't know. This is not statistically significant. It doesn't tell us a big picture. We don't know how these um, were selected. They could be picking and choosing, uh, cherry picking the winners. And then it's very secret. So the results of the audit are not published. You cannot find them. Um, and it's not clear if you even request them, whether you'll be granted that access. <clears throat> so the audit process is both secret and empty. And even if the audit is perfect, and even if the elections are perfect, and Indiana is better than every other state in the union, then show us. Yeah, that, that, would, that would definitely be nice. I didn't realize it was so little that was actually uh, ever checked out. You said five counties out of what, 93? Five counties out of 92, and of those, less than half the votes have any kind of paper trail to audit. Shit. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, okay, well, what, what, what would you say as a secretary of state, what would you say uh, to the small business owners? Like, uh, what, 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 uh, what restrictions does Indiana have? I assume some sort of taxes and that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, what which would you like to see lightened up on? Sure. One more point on audits before we jump oh, back okay. to businesses here um, to finish a thought. So the audit, the, there is no report about the audit findings except for one sentence on the entire Secretary of State's website. And that sentence basically says that these results come with the um, high degree of statistical assurance, and that's defined as 90% or better. Now, it's not entirely clear what that means, but on the surface, it could mean that the Secretary of State is saying we could lose or miss one out of 10 votes, and we're calling that a great election. So declaring it, yeah, and think about that for a minute. One out of 10 votes, if or one out of 10 times, they're saying that's good enough. It's a great election. So if your car didn't start one out of 10 times, or if one out of 10 planes <coughs> crashed, or if your computer crashed one out of 10 times, we would never accept that rate. If one out of 10 knee replacements failed, we would never accept that failure rate. So it's really critical to understand what it is that they're telling us. And that, that public fact alone should be alarming to all of us. Yeah, I bet you a lot of people are thoroughly unaware of that. And it's in plain sight. It's right on their website. It's not hiding. 
Uh-huh. So you know, uh, before we get to the other one, I, I, I had a lot of another one. What would it do getting the, the, a libertarian on the, on the, on the, what do you call it, the board and all the different uh, counties? Sure. Would that, would, it help, would that help with ballot? Obviously, that probably help with ballot access and stuff too. I don't even know if that's an issue in Indiana. Uh, and so this goes back to your first question about uh, from what Don Raymer was talking about in his speech at Reno and how transformative this election can be and how and therefore why it is so important. So in Indiana, every state has sort of different rules about ballot access uh, for different parties. In Indiana, the secretary of state's race is the ballot access race. In many other states, that race is the governor's race or the presidential race. But the idea is that once every four years, um, however each party scores on the secretary of state's race, determines how much access they'll have ballots and how much influence they'll have as a party in in state politics. So in Indiana, by Indiana law, which of course was written by the Democrats and the Republicans, um, not surprisingly, they've chosen the Secretary of State's race as the ballot access race. And one can look at that and say, this is a very unexciting office, right? It's, It's very administrative. So what do you do? How do you differentiate? My candidate files paperwork better than your candidate. It's not that easy to differentiate. And so it's really challenging to have different policies and different values come through this office, which makes it very difficult for anybody who's not a Democrat or Republican to gain increasing access to ballot access. So just think about how um, a duopoly then keeps out any kind of competition from whether it's libertarians, who and libertarians are the third largest party in the state, but it could be any single issue party. It could be a single issue party for Save the Whales. And think about how these whales are just being uh, are out there being slaughtered because there isn't a party in Indiana that's able to get their voice through and get a seat at the table in state government. Um, and that's because these rules keep out or designed to keep out third parties and any single issue uh, voter blocks by intention. So within an Indiana law, uh, the first threshold is 2%. So a party um, that gets 2% or more statewide in the Indiana Secretary of State's race once every four years, gets ballot access to the general election. And that'll happen for the next four years until the Secretary of State's race comes up again. So libertarians in Indiana have had ballot access, uh, statewide ballot access in the general since 1994. So for nearly 30 years at this point. And that's something we celebrate. That's something that we depend on to get our candidates on the ballot. For parties that don't yet, and there are green parties, there's the green party, there are all kinds of other parties that are out there, um, and they have issues as well uh, that they care about. So for any of those parties, they have to get 2%, they have to get signatures for any candidate who wants to run for any office. And the number of signatures is has to be at least 2% of the total number of votes cast for the Secretary of State in that district. So if there's a small House District 1 office that the Save the Whales Party wants to get onto, if there were um, 10,000 votes cast for Secretary of State in that House District 1, they need to get 10,000 signatures. And of course, signatures is a very difficult game uh, because about a third of them are immediately discarded. People didn't live where they thought they lived or didn't count or weren't registered to vote uh, or registered in a different district, whatever. Um, and it's expensive. It's time-consuming, expensive to collect those, those, those signatures. So if you think that each signature, well, you need to get 
15,000 signatures collected in order to get 10,000 good, quote unquote, good signatures, and that each signature might cost 10 to $15 to collect uh, in terms of total cost, it's a very expensive and costly proposition to fuel the candidate. And that's just to get on the ballot. That's not even to begin to run. Um, so right. think about how effective that is at keeping out any kind of third party candidate. Signatures are very, very difficult. So the 2% threshold is game changing for any third party. Oh, so I have a question about that. So does that mean that if libertarians have 2% of the vote that they're, they can be on the ballot in all 92 counties or only those counties where they carry 2%? Great question. So that, and that's, that's one of the major benefits of the 2% threshold statewide is because any libertarian for any office um, at any level can automatically come on the ballot without signatures in the general election. So whether it's the county dog catcher or the governor, you don't okay. need signatures as a if you have two percent or more. Okay, great. Yeah, that was a good question. Think of that myself. That, that that's good. And it's a hard truth. It's a hard truth to say that any party that has less than two percent and therefore needs to get signatures is politically irrelevant. But a, a hard truth. At what percentage did uh, Donald Rainwater get statewide? Was it like 12% or something like that? It was about, yeah, 11.5% is the official tally. And uh, we suspect that there were probably more votes that he received that would have been disallowed as scratched votes. Um, and we can get back to that in a moment. Uh, but let me, if, if it's okay with you guys, let me talk about the next tier. And to go back to yeah, your original absolutely. question, Sean. So yeah. that sort of talks about signatures and 2%. The next tier, the next sort of uh, line of success is getting 10% in the general election for Indiana Secretary of State. And when that happens under state law, that party now suddenly not only gets this, the same benefits like, and guess what else you get? Um, you get this uh, jujitsu knife. Uh, well, in this case, you actually get statewide access to the primaries. And this is a really big deal. And this is what Donald Rainwater was talking about in his speech, uh, because this is transformative on a whole new level. At 10%, a party gets access to statewide primary elections. Uh, and there's a twofold benefit here. First, you get to have the millions of dollars of free advertising, uh, free, quote unquote, because everybody's talking about the primary elections, they're promoting it, uh, it's up part of conversation, people are looking for uh, information about candidates, and it is a taxpayer-funded primary election. As libertarians, we favor privatization and not uh, public taxation, so we feel that political parties, all political parties, libertarians, Democrats, Republicans, and so on, are private organizations and should have private conventions, privately funded conventions for getting their candidates. Um, but if we're going to have a publicly funded election, then we should have an equal seat at the table. Uh, and that's why it's advantageous for libertarians to be included in the primaries. The, the second benefit to that <clears throat> is once Indiana is an open primary state. So for those who aren't familiar with that, um, as an Indiana voter, you walk into your polling location during the primary and you say, hi, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I'm a, I'm a Libertarian, and I'd like to request the ballot for my party. And when you do that, um, what you're basically agreeing to, and there's, a, there's legal language there, you're, what you're agreeing to is I intend to vote predominantly for candidates of this party in the general election. 
So can you lie? Absolutely. Do people uh, do this? Absolutely. Um, is it illegal and immoral? Sure. Um, but it's done anyway. So in fact, what is a semi-common practice is if you're a Republican and you want to ensure the best outcome in the general election, you can pull a Democrat primary ballot and vote for the worst candidate and hoping that the worst candidate wins and then is up against your best candidate as a Republican in the general. Um, and I'm not saying that any of this is right, but we also have to acknowledge that this is one of the disadvantages of an open primary. Um, but mm -hmm. what does happen is, or what is beneficial is that the parties who participate in the primaries, at this point, only Democrats and Republicans, they get a list of everybody who pulled one of their primary ballots. And that's information that's invaluable to parties because now they know who their voters are. They know who their supporters are. They know who their donors are likely to be. Uh, they know where messaging is working. They know where messaging is not working. Just think about managing a campaign and even a party infrastructure, knowing that data. Um, and it's truly invaluable. So libertarians and all other parties have been kept out of the primaries. And in many ways, we're flying blind compared to the insights and intelligence that the Democrats and Republicans both get. And that's a huge disadvantage to libertarians in any other party. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, out here in California, we got the, uh, the top two system. Uh, you know, so we have the primary and then they take the top two and they're the only people that get a run in the regular election. And, you know, we either have some feeble Republican or, you know, in, in some even worse cases, it's a Democrat versus Democrat or, you know, like here in my region here in Los Angeles, uh, the the state uh, assembly member, she runs unopposed pretty much every every year. So, you know, there's just there's no uh, checks and balances here. And, you know, the, the state looks like it. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of work to be done on all these different states. That's right. And there are a lot of pros and cons, um, but it's important to be able to understand them, explain them, and then work together to, to get to a better tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That's right. Any, anything else about the elections before we talk about some small businesses? Um, yes. Let's talk about that other question that you had, second place finishes. What does that oh, mean? Yes, second place finishes, yes. So um, the 10% is a very important goal for the Libertarian Party of Indiana. Uh, we have never achieved that or have not yet achieved that here. And it's a very real possibility. So Donald Rainwater achieved 11, at least 11.5% of the vote two short years ago in 2020. So he broke that glass ceiling. It is absolutely possible for a libertarian candidate to get more than 10% in a statewide election. Anybody who tells you otherwise doesn't understand the facts. Mm -hmm. So whether I can do the same is, is a fair question. Uh, and that's what we'll find out on November 8th, 2022. But what will that mean if, uh, if as Secretary of State, I'm able to get more than 10%? Well, we understand that. But there's a second issue, uh, and there's overlap uh, in terms of what happens if we get second place. And this is on a county by county basis, as well as a statewide basis. So two different things to consider. Um, in Indiana, under state law, county election boards are comprised of three members. First is the county clerk who's separately elected. And because it's Indiana, most of them are going to be Republicans. Um, and then the other two seats, the first is appointed by the first place party who comes in first place in the Indiana Secretary of State's race. And the third seat or the other seat is 
appointed by the second place party. So in most of most counties in Indiana, there's a Republican clerk. The Republicans have come in first place. So they appoint the second Republican to the the three-person county election board. And then the Democrats come in second place. And so they appoint the third member of that county election board. So the county election board then is two Republicans, one Democrat, zero libertarians. Mm -hmm. Things change if libertarians come in second place in in that county in Secretary of State's race. What will then happen, likely to happen, is we would have two Republicans, one libertarian, and zero Democrats. And in that case, the, the dynamic is very different because at this point, libertarians and Republicans are both very nearly aligned on uh, approaching election security and election integrity with solutions or with changes. The Democrats, um, I have yet to hear concrete solutions about how they want to make elections more secure. Uh, They typically want to increase mail-in voting, which in my personal opinion um, is only increases vulnerability and risk. Mm -hmm. So, and then what, what, what would happen like if you got second place in the whole state in the whole state, um, it is a similar type of pattern. There is a state uh, election commission, and that is five members. So similar kind of game. Uh, the first place party appoints two, second place party appoints the other two, and the fifth tiebreaker is the secretary of state, him or herself. Oh, okay. All right. That, that's cool. Um, so how about the small businesses now? Small businesses. Okay. So... Because you said you're, so you have, you have a, uh, what, what part of Indiana are you living in? I'm based in Carmel. So it's just North of Indianapolis, uh, okay. center of the state. Is that, and that's where your business is? Is that where you grew up? Um, I actually grew up in a small town called New York city and oh, okay. uh, Hoosier by choice. So I moved here about a decade ago and that was because New York was just inhospitable to startups uh, and, and entrepreneurs. It's very expensive to live there. Um, there's high costs, there's high regulation, there's high taxation. There are a lot of resources, but to truly have the um, financial breathing room to experiment and build things and have the unpredictability and unreliability of experimentation, which is the whole game of being an entrepreneur, you've got to experiment with things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's very difficult, uh, almost impossible to do that, which is why it's so expensive uh, to have businesses there. So for lots of reasons, I, uh, I came out to Indiana in 2013 and, uh, I promise you this, I am not going back. And the track record of New York since then only proves me right. Oh yeah. You got it. You got out of there plenty of time. <laughs> Correct. Uh, and one of my favorite quotes, uh, from the governor of New York, when someone, when a reporter or journalist asked him, why do you think so many people are leaving New York state? His answer was the weather. <laughs> the political weather, maybe. <laughs> uh, the, or the economic climate or the taxation climate, perhaps. Yeah, yeah that would have been a more complete answer. Uh, but it, it just, it makes me chuckle to think about how disconnected from reality the political regime in the political machine in New York is. And uh, Indiana is much more hospitable to small businesses, and that's really near and dear to my heart. So it is possible, uh, you know, not just the garage or, or barn or farm business, but the entrepreneur, the person who sees a market opportunity and who sees a customer base that's in need and can put together the resources, the capital, the talent, uh, the organization to 
create value and serve that need. And that's really the American spirit. That's, that's what we do. That's why we are the richest nation on earth. Uh, and that's why we continue to innovate and create. And that's why people want to come here uh, because it is the land of opportunity. And we continue to crush that dream uh, and crush that reality by all these regulations and all these disincentives for creating value and creating things that are new. We are fortunate because innovation drives a better quality of life. Our tomorrow is better than today because we're innovating, we're building, we are making, we're finding things, making them better. And that gives us the better quality of life. That's why trends start here and get copied out into the rest of the world. Yeah. So, so Indiana is obviously better than New York for small businesses, but what, what do you think still needs to be fixed in Indiana to make it even better? Sure. So we could talk about tax regulation and tax schemes and certainly reducing. Um, Donald Rainwater had a tr tremendous proposal for eliminating the state income tax, and that would be a huge uh, boon for small businesses. He had a proposal for eliminating the state sales tax. Again, that would be create a very economically friendly environment. And just look at Florida uh, to talk about what this actually means. This isn't just theory or, or a bunch of crazy libertarians saying this would be a good idea. But look at the actual numbers. Look how people move their feet. Look how people move their businesses. And during COVID and over the past years, businesses have fled high tax environments like New York, like California, and have oh, yeah. moved to low tax environments like Texas, like Florida. And I think we haven't begun <coughs> to see the story of Florida yet for another 20 or 30 years when not just a few businesses, but enough of a core, enough of core of capital and um, intellect and brain capacity have moved to a place that allows for freer markets. And we'll see that synergy, just like we saw, look at San Francisco. Why is that such a hub of economy and innovation? It's because there was, um, there was a tipping point. There was an inflection point there when it was the place to be. And the best and brightest and smartest and the most capital were all part of this exciting place. And we see this throughout history. In London, um, in the 1700s, 1800s, in the coffee shops and the coffee houses, this was really an innovative place because for the first time, uh, there wasn't the, the class structure was broken. And you could have wealthy landed gentry with capital, with resource, financial resources, sitting and having coffee with um, entrepreneurs and people with ideas. And so suddenly the free market could connect ideas and opportunity with capital and resources in a way that was fundamentally different. And we saw so much innovation come out of those London coffee houses. Uh, and that was the, sort of the quest for better chronology, which led to better longitude, which led to global exploration, which led to the new world, which led to the American colonies, which led to everything else. So these things really do tie together historically. And anytime that we have capital and ideas and free people and time, we find that humanity advances in quality of life. This is about loving people and loving for their health and their quality of life and their freedom um, to choose what's right for them. So ultimately, Indiana is reflective of that, creating the free market, getting laws and regulations out of the way of people who want to innovate and people who want to fund innovators and entrepreneurs. So to tie it back to your question, sorry, that was a long prelude. I love it. What, what <laughs> can, yeah, but that's the 30,000... 300 year foot or 300 year view, uh, but it's important to understand that context. Why is this, why does this work? It's not just somebody imagining it, but it's the historical precedent. It, it is a truth. So when people are free to innovate, good things happen. 
So taking that lesson, how do we do, how do we enact this? How do we create a more free environment here in Indiana? Um, so part of that is the Secretary of State's race uh, and Secretary of State's office, but a large part of that is the taxation. Um, it is the General Assembly. It is the executive branch and the governor. So those things do need to be um, favorable to small businesses, to entrepreneurs. Um, but the Secretary of State's office has one role in that, or at least a role, and, and that is to get government out of the way, to facilitate the process to make it easier for small businesses to start and launch. So uh, to put it into context, I've been doing a series of these town hall debates uh, or town halls. And there we were in Zionsville, I think last week or week before that, but very recently. And the question came up of um, how do you want to help small businesses? So I asked the room, show of hands, everybody raise your hand. If you have ever started a small business here in Indiana, and use the Secretary of State's website. And so among the audience, uh, which might've been about hundred people, we had maybe a couple dozen hands. I was really glad to see that. And they might've been doctors or lawyers or anesthesiologists, uh, who knows, or, or um, restaurateurs or any number of different businesses. And among the candidates uh, who were only libertarian Democrats, Republicans did not participate, uh, that there were, I think, three hands that were up. Uh, one, of who's, one of those hands was mine because I founded my business here. And so, I then asked the room, same show of hands, if when you were founding your starting your business and you thought about your customers and your product and your service and your competition and the regulation and your cash flow and your payroll and your employees, with all these many things in front and foremost in your mind, did you pause to think, oh, I know who can answer all my problems. I'll go to the government and ask for their advice and recommendations. And I kid you not, there's video of this, Every single hand in the room went down except for one candidate's hand, a Democrat candidate. <laughs> so small business owners understand that government is not here to help. Right. Small business under owners understand that government does not create jobs. Government mm -hmm. does not drive the economy. Government only gets in the way of Absolutely. independent people who do. Yeah. So as Secretary of State and as a Libertarian Secretary of State, the single best thing that I can do is get government out of the way of the people who are going to create businesses, who are going to create value, who are going to create jobs. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, what about occupational licensing? Is there an issue with that in Indiana? I know oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and even before getting to occupational licensing, so to, to answer concretely, what are things that I can do in that office? Um, treat the office as if it were business and with a, a, with a pro-business mindset uh, to be an entrepreneur serving my customers who are going to be entrepreneurs starting their businesses. <clears throat> so that means expanding service, customer service hours. It means cost, expanding customer service access, um, maybe not just email and phone, but text messaging. Um, it means having uh, prepackaged go kits. So if you are starting a, a, how many people start restaurants? How many people start landscaping businesses? How many people start uh, new nonprofits, right? There are different categories of entities that are being started every year. Let's make it easier for them. How many people start food trucks every year? So if you're starting this type of business, not only do you need this type of paperwork from our office, but based on regulations, you're gonna to need to talk to this agency, that agency, that agency, and you're gonna need this form, that form, that form. So let's make it really easy, prepackaged, um, and serve maybe not 100%, but at least, nine, at least 80% um, like that and make it much easier for them. Also, things that I want um, to advocate for as Secretary of State to go to the General Assembly 
and say, this form, this process, it's redundant. We already captured this information over here. Let's simplify and streamline this process so it's not a burden at all to the small business that's just getting started. Uh, furthermore, I would love to see Indiana as a capital for um, cryptocurrency and for hemp uh, growth. I mean, we are an agricultural, 10th largest agricultural state in the union. Uh, we are famous for corn and soy and uh, pork and a number of other wonderful products that come from Indiana. So why can't we uh, also produce and grow hemp? And the entire hemp industry that's growing for all kinds of uh, agricultural construction products. <laughs> and if we can create the legal framework that allows for uh, hemp for hemp growth and agriculture that allows for cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency companies and all the financing and legal restrictions around capital and dollars that are part of that economy, then if we create the legal framework, companies will come. Um, it's sort of like the movie uh, Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. We build, libertarians in government build the playing field. We don't hire the players. We don't call the plays. We don't uh, field the teams. But government should build the field and should umpire, referee, or adjudicate the plays. That's, those are the two rules or two roles for government. And we can do that. We have a wonderful opportunity here in Indiana to, um, to set the stage and welcome entire new industries to set up shop here. That's what, that's what government can do. Government can create the place. Yeah, facilitate the, 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 the playing field. Because, you know, a lot of people, I mean, you're there into like the, you know, the minimum wage and, you know, the minimum wage never, never created any jobs. You know, all these regulations never created any jobs. They only stop things and get in the way. That's right. I was at the Kosciuszko County Fair uh, on Sunday night, and I, I told you about these lemon shakeups that I'm sort of addicted to <laughs> and are good for the voice as I'm talking. And I went, I left our booth and went to the nearest um, lemon shakeup stand. And it, it's on my social, it's on my Facebook page, so you can see it there. But in the window, there's a handwritten sign that says, uh, help wanted, start now. <laughs> and I had to ask, right, is this real? So there are two guys in this little, uh, it's a small business, right? It's a trail, it's a truck cart. And all they do is make lemon shakeups and they go, I imagine, from county fair or event to event. So this is the type of small business that, the, the, that we really can assist. And when you think, and I asked the, the, the person making my, you know, shaking my drink, um, so did you are you still hiring? Do you really mean start right now? And the owner looked to the person making my drink and said, yes, he, he just started earlier today. So <laughs> think about the urgency of that small business owner. He needs to serve his customers, me, and he needs help to do that. Uh, and so he doesn't need paperwork and filings and worrying about payroll and all these other things. He's got to make hiring decisions, get people in, serve the customer, and then figure out everything else in the back end. And that's where the Secretary of State's office can have a more complete understanding and respect for the priorities of small businesses. And as Secretary of State, I have that background and will continue to really serve small businesses as they grow. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's a great example. Yeah, start right now. <laughs> That's cool. Literally, look at the photo. Zoom in on that sign. Yeah. Handwritten. Help wanted. Start right now. Start now. <laughs> Direct quote. Yeah. So, so what 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 occupational licensing issues are there there? So, like many states, Indiana does have uh, restrictive occupational licensing. Uh, you could be you, Ohio. We share a border with Ohio uh, to the east, so you could be a hair stylist or hair cutter in Ohio. 
and live across the street, across the state line from Indiana. And you could be a hairstylist for 30 years, have a great career, booming business, um, five-star review on Google, Yelp, and every other uh, service. You could be Better Business Bureau, Angie's List, top rated everything. And then if you move across the street uh, to Indiana, across the state line, you could be a stone's throw 30 feet away across the street. You could move your business there and you would have to go back and get relicensed, go through a training hours, pay a fee, a licensing fee, which could be north of a thousand dollars to prove your bona fides that you're qualified to be a haircutter in Indiana. Um, and that's just bizarre and, and capricious and, and really disadvantageous to the free market. That is interfering in the way markets work. Now, understanding that certifications are meant to be a gatekeeper to keep out bad actors, but in the last, in the technology revolution, the last 20 years, 25 years, even more generously, there's transparency. There's transparency around market data. If you give a bad haircut, people are going to talk about it and it's going to be online. So you don't necessarily need that same certification. The certification is not worth nearly what it was before that um, because your reviews are going to be more impactful. Let me ask you this. If you own a restaurant and you get everybody sick because your chicken had salmonella and everybody goes home sick and um, terrible, terrible thing for your business, what's going to hurt your business more? Google ratings or the Department of Health? Oh, man, uh, man uh, Google will tear you up, man. <laughs> Exactly. Every, or even Facebook for that matter, or social media, yeah, yeah. people will be out there talking about how oh, yeah. they're so sick at your restaurant within hours. And it'll take the Department of Health maybe, maybe that till the next day, uh, if it's a weekend, they won't even be there until Monday to show up. So the free market responds, the free market reacts. And that is a truth that libertarians understand and embrace. And we're just waiting for government to catch up. Now, granted, this is uh, bloated government. This is... Um, these are people who work for themselves. It's government serving itself. And these are people who find themselves in a gravy train kind of job within governments. And they make money. They make their living by telling others what to do. They are takers, not makers. And so the free market is experiences this kind of inefficiency and interference by occupational regulation. Doing this podcast and you know going around different places and talking to libertarians from all over the country, I'm shocked at how many places have occupational licensing that strict on people who do hair. I mean, you'd think they were surgeons or something. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, you can buy that damn thing with the suck cut that blows your hair and stuff. You know, you know, you have to have a license to run that damn thing. You know, they'll right. let anybody free with that abomination. Right. And I am not a hairstylist, so I don't pretend to know uh, the complexities of that job. Um, but what I will say is that is that there's there's a cost to doing business. That getting it right is more important, and that building loyalty, building trust, serving your customer, and having that transparency in the market is going to do far more than any occupational licensure. I always thought the occupational licensing, it should be more something like if you wanted to go through it and use that as like a, uh, a, a selling point. Oh, I got this approval. They came in and checked it out. And then people could say, oh, I want to go there. They got the, that, that good rating I like. So they could do that. If, if people were really into that and believe, you know, what the hell the government was saying, 
I wouldn't be opposed to something like that, but just to say somebody can't have a job or cut hair is just, it's crazy to me. And let me take another key look at this issue from a different aspect. <laughs> One of the questions that almost always comes up in a town hall event is, well, what about the Latino community or what about the black community, the African-American community? What about this community or that community, the immigrant community? Mm-hmm. Insert whatever community name you want. And with, with um, several different roles, so restaurants um, and hairstylists, those are very local and very locally cultural um, services and businesses. And often they're the first businesses by members of that community. And so if we actually want to help any one of those communities, the, the single best thing we could do is make it easier for them to start some of these early businesses. They may not, if you're uh, an immigrant and don't, um, and you're first getting established in the U.S., you might not be starting a high-tech company, but you definitely could start a local uh, haircutting business in your community. You definitely could start a local restaurant in your community that serves your ethnic food. And so these are the foundations, the pillars of those communities. And from there, they build wealth. They build, uh, they send next generation to school to get educated or trained or go into uh, an even more lucrative career field. So if we want to actually help people and help these communities, then one of the most important things we could do is again, get out of their way so that they can start these very um, basic businesses to serve themselves and serve their communities. Yeah, it sounds like a beautiful future, man, if we can get libertarians elected. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Do you have any other questions before we take a break, John? No, I don't think so. All right. Well, let's take a little break and come back uh, and talk a little more about, you know, uh, running for office and like how uh, how you became a libertarian, that kind of stuff. Sure. That sounds good to me. All right. We'll be right back. Thank you, gentlemen. All right, everybody, I've got a new album coming out on April 15th. The title is Free People. There's a very special track on there, though. It's called Take Human Action. It's a rework of the old folk tune, The Worried Man Blues. I turned it into Take Human Action, and I want to donate all the royalties to the Mises Caucus. So the more you listen, the more you give. It's a great way to give without spending a dime. I also invited a lot of the Meacocks from the Facebook group and a few other that I knew uh, to send in some tracks. So it's a group event, and there's several people playing on it. We had a big libertarian hootenanny. So please listen to it on April 15th, and listen often, and give to the Mises Caucus. Thank you very much, and back to the show. What, what was it? Uh, did, did we cover most of the stuff you think uh, the, the, for the Secretary of State race? You know, like things that you would oh, like there's to always more. Uh, there's, there's always more to cover, um, but we <laughs> did talk about election security. We did talk about auditing. Uh, we did talk about uh, what it means to achieve 2%, 10%, and second place finishes. Uh, so that's always a, a good starting point for why this election is so important. And if Donald Rainwater uh, chooses to run again in 2024, then he would be the beneficiary of a much stronger um, party access 
to state politics and state infrastructure. And that would make his future campaign and future run um, likely even more successful. So it's, uh, we stand on the shoulders. Exactly. We stand on the shoulders of giants and from strength to strength. So everything that we do here in this election in 2022 will uh, pay dividends for whoever is on the ballot in 2024 and beyond. And that's wonderful. That's great. So when you when you when you moved to Indiana, were you already a libertarian? Were you were you uh, like did you uh, were you there when Larry Sharp ran for office over there in New York or you you left before that? Did not have the chance to vote for Larry Sharp in New York, um, but I was already voting Libertarian before I left. And again, that was one of the many reasons why um, yeah. I left. And there was, uh, New York is not just painful in terms of a taxation scheme, um, but it's very limiting. In it, It's meant to be recognized as one of the great free parts of society. You can go there and be anybody you want to be. Uh, and yet, because there is a Democrat party machine that controls so much, it is very stifling. Um, so I have a friend who is, you know, grew up in rural North Carolina, um, lived in, in on his own, was a survivalist and naturalist, and uh, came to New York City for, for love, um, and was there and knew that he wasn't going to be able to enjoy the great outdoors, knew that he was not going to be come anywhere close to his uh, firearms collection, uh, but he was still an avid, uh, an avid rifleman and enjoyed uh, reading, understanding, learning, growing, uh, respecting weapons. And he was on a subway, a New York City subway uh, with uh, unarmed, didn't even have his knife on him and certainly no firearm. That's hopeless in New York. And uh, he was, he had a magazine uh, and it was guns and ammo and the cover showed it. It says guns and ammo. And he was sitting there reading when a um, plainclothes policeman, New York city policeman came over and said, sir, you have to put your magazine away. You're intimidating people. You're scaring people. Holy shit. <laughs> so not only is that infringement of a second amendment rights, but it's first amendment rights as well. Crazy. Uh, and this actually happened. And this is, there's, there's so much fear on New York um, that this is, and, and so much sort of forced groupthink. Um, it's very difficult to be independent and to be anywhere right of far left. Yeah. Yeah. That man, that's, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. There's a, uh, you know, California the same way, man. We got, we got groupthink going on out here like crazy. So what, what was it that, uh, like, are you a, a longtime libertarian or uh what, what, what brought you to libertarianism? So my background is, uh, you know, I grew up in a, a big Democrat family. I was a registered Democrat. I had voted Democrat. Um, but seeing the, um, the failures of their policies, seeing the hypocrisy of their values, seeing the failure of making any progress uh, when given the opportunity, it was very frustrating. Also, as a natural path, when we're when we're young, we're all sort of idealistic. We care about humans. We care about people, and those values align well with the Democrats and the left. Uh, compassion, and I, I'm not. I don't apologize for being compassionate then or now. But what took time uh, and was a process was to recognize that the, as a party, as a political force, uh, they were unable and unwilling to actually make change. And so recognizing that um, my values, my personal values, and recognizing that we could achieve greater success by setting people free. So it really comes down to give a man a fish versus teach a man to fish. And the Democrat party um, and the left really 
bases themselves and their success is on the model or, or the promise of giving every man a fish, right? Yeah, the fish every, nobody will be hungry, a chicken in every pot. Um, everybody's fed, taken care of, healthy, loved. And that comes at a cost and it comes at a cost of everybody else's wallet. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the better solution, the longer, the sustainable solution, the only real solution, meaningful solution is to elevate people, to uplift people, to give them the opportunity for those who have the will and the desire and the drive. And that is libertarianism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, set the individual free and see what happens, man. I, 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 I love the. It's such a it's such a beautiful philosophy, and man, we get demonized saying, "Oh, you're just you're selfish and all that stuff." It's like, man, we're we're volunteers, man. You know, we believe in helping out the community and stuff. So, man, uh, that's great. You know, my, my libertarianism my libertarianism comes from a deep seat of love, and I want to be very clear about that. Libertarians are often placated or or accused of being cold and ruthless and uncaring, um, but that is actually the exact opposite of where I come from, of, of the root of my libertarianism. It's from a place of love that I want you to be able to succeed, that I want to give you the same freedoms, the same opportunities that I enjoy without limitation, without restriction, without me or my ideals um, re- limiting your ability to achieve. I want to see your success. Yeah. People always say, well, you're, you're corporation friendly. I said, I'm not anti-corporation we're you know every libertarian i know is a small business owner or something like that you know none of them own big corporations and stuff like that so and uh, you know sure. just it's it's crazy you know we're, we're most of us are entrepreneurs or something like that you know we want to we want to help out the small people and you know get our niche in the in the in the market and get everything going on you know and build sure. from there sean let me ask you a question where do businesses come from 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 individuals from individuals and small businesses. That's exactly right. And so the only way to get big businesses is to start as small businesses. And one of the great frustrations I have is that the Republicans um, have a lot of good words to describe why they're pro-business, but a more correct truth is that they're pro-corporatism and they're pro-big business. And this is a really important distinction to make for Hoosier voters and for Hoosier small business owners is that the Republican Party is very closely aligned with the biggest businesses and the biggest corporations, and their incentive is to not not encourage small business and competition, but actually to suppress it and kill it. So if we actually want to encourage innovation, encourage entrepreneurship, encourage new business creation, encourage new job creation, encourage a better quality of life, that's going to come from supporting our small businesses. That's going to come from creating a fair and competitive marketplace so that a small business can eat a big business's lunch because it's better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you always think of the example of Apple, you know, they started in a garage and came in and whooped IBM's ass, you know, starting in a garage and we need to make, make it easier for people to do those kind of things. You know, we could, uh, we could be living in a much better future real quick if we just allow you know, all these different uh, ideas to, you know, drive us in that direction. I, I, and I think that's a great question to ask rhetorically. So for everyone who's listening, imagine a, a world of science fiction, a parallel universe to where we are right now. Imagine the quality of life that you'll have, the medicines, the telecommunications, the travels, um, the 
the foods, the uh, efficiency, the quality of air and water, natural resources, um, your ability to travel and the ability to earn an income and to have time off and spend time with family because you're not working because everything's more efficient. Um, think about uh, think about the medicines uh, and access to surgeries and preventive care that you can get. Think about the things that make your quality of life better. And think in this science um, science fiction world about how much better that is because government isn't there, isn't limiting progress, isn't limiting innovation, isn't limiting small businesses. And that you are the beneficiary. You get to enjoy all these things because other people can work on your behalf. And that is the sad fact of the world around us because we are not living our best selves. We are not enjoying and benefiting from the best things that we have to offer. We're suffering. And it's because of government limiting our our capacity to think, our capacity to invent, our capacity to create. Yeah. So, you know, you said you'd mentioned you live in Carmel, right? You said? Correct. Is, is, I think that's where Donald Rainwater lives too, doesn't he? And I think um, Brian Nichols, I believe, just moved there, <clears throat> the, the podcaster. Is, it, is that area full of quite uh, a few libertarians? It, they're about. Oops, I lost you there. Say what? 1,000 people, and I need to know them all, but there are. Many, oh, let's see. Uh, can you hear my audio again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're back on. Okay, good. So there are about 100,000 people who live in the city of Carmel, and I don't pretend to know all of them. Uh, it, it's just a hair smaller than South Bend, Indiana. So uh, for those of you who follow uh, Democrat primary presidential candidates, uh, Pete Buttigieg is from South, is, was the former mayor of South Bend. And uh, his city is only just a hair bigger than Carmel, uh, which is one of the cities is a northern suburb of Indianapolis. So yes, uh, there are many libertarians in Carmel and in the sort of northern suburbs of Indiana and uh, or of Indianapolis. Uh, and it's a great community for people who are professionals um, or, or not, if they have many different career fields and interests. Uh, but it is but people who seek to be free, who seek to create, who seek a better quality of life for themselves and their families. It's not surprising that they end up here. Yeah. All right. That's cool. Because I, I noticed that I, I talked to a few people and I, I, I keep seeing libertarians. I was like, man, they must. They must have a good neighborhood council or something like that going on there, which would be great. So, and if we can get on water to get um, even more votes or a win, it'll be a really interesting time indeed. That's cool. So, uh, wh what do you got coming up on your schedule in the near future? I, I think it might take me a few days to get this podcast out. Both of my engineers got uh, new gigs and everything, so they're uh, they're pretty busy. So. Uh, might take sure. you. What do you got coming up in the in the next like uh, I don't know, a few weeks? Sure. So whenever you're listening to this, uh, the website is moreforindiana.com. That's M A U R E R for Indiana.com, and we've got an events page there, so you can see the absolute latest. Um, but in the next days and weeks, uh, we are out in the campaign trail. So it is county fair season, and uh, as I said, I'm out there eating all the fried foods drinking all the lemon shakeups and uh, getting the privilege of meeting voters from uh, nearly every county and, and growing. And that is, um, like I said, a privilege to be able to really hear the local issues, to understand what is truly unique, but to see the greater commonalities. And it is a true thing um, from that perspective to understand that we are more similar than we're different. 
Um, and I've been given this great privilege um, and given the opportunity to run for this office and to meet my neighbors, to meet my fellow Hoosiers and to see that truth that there's so much common ground that we all want and that we can work toward. And um, my campaign has been focused on original solutions. So just good common sense, good business ideas. It's not rocket science, but just good government. So these are original solutions. We're looking to get impartial results and impartial outcomes that whether whatever inputs we have, that it's going to be fair for everybody, um, fair for us, fair for libertarians, fair for Republicans, fair for Democrats. So very impartial results. We are a, a fair third party. We're a good fulcrum for the left-right um, balance beam that exists currently. And then we're focused on the diplomatic delivery of these solutions. So it's being the fair player, the fair trusted arbiter in, in between to deliver them diplomatically to our neighbors, some of whom to the left, some of whom to the right. Uh, but either way, fair is fair. And we're going to um, be consistent and be principled and do this diplomatically and with care and love for all of our neighbors. Uh, yeah. So it's a, it's a busy campaign season. Uh, we're going to be going into, uh, we're working toward a public debate. I've been public on my uh, social media calling for a, a, an official moderated debate uh, with all three candidates, me and my two opponents. Uh, so I'm hoping that uh, both accept. I believe the Democrat candidate, my Democrat opponent, has accepted that. Um, and I'm waiting for my Republican opponent to accept that challenge for a debate. So that would be a good thing to see. That way, Hoosier voters can actually see the differences between the candidates and know and, and get closer to understanding which vote is going to be the right one for them. Where can people check you out on social media? Uh, so we're on Facebook, Twitter, um, we've got Instagram, and uh, stay tuned for TikTok. Uh, there's a lot that's happening on social media and more to come soon. You got just, just your name uh, for Indiana? Is it F-O-R? Uh, it's Jeff Moore for Indiana, uh, and that's the Facebook page as well. Uh, but the website, Moore for Indiana, M-A-U-R-E-R. Uh, and you can spell it any number of ways. The number for Indiana, F-O-R for Indiana.com. Uh, pretty much if you misspell it or guess at it, you'll get to the right place. That's and from there, we've got all of our social media links on the website. All right, cool. Have you been hitting up college towns or like what's your uh, what's your strategic plan of places you're going to hit up? Like uh, places like, say, Rainwater, where Rainwater did good or, you know, like college towns or you're going to yeah, hit well, up like Gary? Uh, so we can definitely follow the footsteps where Don Rainwater did well and where there's a good uh, groundswell of support for him. That's a natural place. Um, uh, at one of the town halls, you could hear my Democrat opponent talking about it. So Indiana is um, a little bit unique in the sense or, or different from many other states in the sense that <coughs> college students, if they register to vote here, can vote here without um, as much of a voter history. So in many states, they actually discourage that or outright prohibit it where if you aren't an in-state resident full-time for at least a year or even longer, you cannot register to vote and can't vote here. In Indiana, it's a little bit different. <clears throat> so we can have, can and do have college students coming from other states to attend IU, Purdue, and many of the other wonderful schools and universities we have here. And they can then register to vote and do vote as, as Indiana citizens. So my Democrat opponent was on record saying specifically she wants to talk to co young college students from specifically California and New Jersey. Imagine that. Imagine that. And <laughs> the, the quote was, we need your votes here. 
Oh man. <clears throat> yeah, that's the that's the last thing you need is some of that crap over there. And that was them. That's public record. I'm not making anything up or giving away any secrets. That was a public forum. It's on. Um, you can see the full uh, the full event on my Facebook page. So she's on record saying that, and uh, that is it, it's legal um, certainly, but it's disingenuous <laughs> spirit of of the Hoosiers who live here, who pay taxes here, who raise families here, who are here, who are invested and own uh, real estate here and are here to stay. So. That's why, and I don't look to change that as Secretary of State, but I do look to make sure that um, voices aren't diminished or diluted. And having fair, transparent, and accurate elections by a receipt and by an audit process that's complete and independent will help guarantee that we don't magically have 100,000 college students start voting next next cycle. Yeah, man, yeah. I mean, that's just crazy that they would actually pander to people who aren't going to live there to, to, to dominate the people who live there. That's just, that's, that's, that's some, uh, uh duopoly shit right there. <laughs> it is. Um, I, it I is. Think George Bush, uh, I think W did that too. He, they were encouraging people to, to vote, you know, for, uh, him in, in blue States. Uh, you know, so I had heard of that kind of behavior before, but I hadn't heard of it much recently. Yeah, it's on record. And, and um, as a fun moment, when I called it out, my next time uh, up speaking, there was an audible uh, rejection of my <laughs> analysis. I bet. Oh, man. Man. So I guess, uh, is there anything else you wanted to hit up before we uh, sign out of here? No, listen, I, I imagine I want to thank everybody for listening. I recognize that this goes deep down the rabbit hole of uh, wonkiness when it comes to, you know, and, and when we talk about why isn't there an effective third party or why isn't there, um, how, why is there such a strong duopoly in our nation and in our politics? Why are our politics in such gridlock and deadlock? And the answer is there's no magic bullet, but it's instead death by a thousand cuts. And understanding how state law limits other um, other political parties, limits other political voices, and limits uh, and strengthens the duopoly in the process. This is how it's done. This is how the sausage is made. This is why. And these are complex issues, right? We've been talking for an hour. It's hard to do this in a 30-second soundbite without mm-hmm. sounding angry or conspiratorial. But the, the correct answer, the full answer is longer and more complex. So I want to really thank you and thank all your listeners for taking the time to take a deep dive and understand this is not so simple. It will take time to un- to understand this. It will take time to unwind this. And we really need to look hard for candidates and campaigns and parties that look for fairness and look for access. Um, whatever your political um, ambitions, whatever your political alignment or issues or focus, it's important that all these voices get a seat at the table and get access to the government. Uh, at the end of the day, we are what makes Americans uniquely different is that we are under self-rule. We are a nation of laws, and these are laws that we create for ourselves. And if we don't have access, equal access and equal voice in creating laws for ourselves, then we veer closer and closer to tyranny. So we have to get this right. We have to get our elections right. We have to call on Americans and voters to step forward and say, enough's enough. Um, I, I want to call on all my uh, Hoosier voters and my neighbors who are exhausted and just frustrated with business as usual to step forward and say, enough's enough. 
we have, if we want to get different results, we're going to have to vote differently. Yep, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, you know, the, to the duopoly, they just, <clears throat> they work at tearing us apart and libertarians just want to set everybody free. And, you know, there's that old, uh, I think it was a saying first and then Sting made a song out of it. But if you love somebody, set them free. And it sounds like you just want to set them free because you love them. Give, give them the freedom to do it. I do. And actually, one of the fun questions that came up in the town halls was, um, what is a libertarian or why are you a libertarian? And my short answer was, um, it's because I want to live the golden rule. I don't want to just preach it. I want to actually live it. And I think in short, that's what libertarianism, libertarianism is. It's treating the people the way I want to be treated. And that's just, let me live my life. I won't do harm to you. I ask you not to do harm to me. Um, and you live your life and I'll live mine. It's just living the golden rule. Yeah, that's great. Did you have any other questions, John? No, I don't, but it's been, a, been great to hear from you, Jeff. I look forward to you making a big impact in November and thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, John and Sean, so much. Uh, really is a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate your interest in, in some of the minutia. And this, like I said, it goes deep down the rabbit hole. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to talk about this. And again, for anyone listening, um, the website is moreforindiana.com. Uh, campaigns are bad in that they require two inputs, votes. I'm oh, sorry, they require two inputs being dollars and volunteers and have one output of votes. So if you can help volunteer or help donate, that will go um, very, very far in achieving change here in Indiana. And I'm grateful for all your support, um, whether known or unknown. So thank you all. Yeah. So, so, you know, as it gets closer to the election, feel free to hit me up or I'll hit you up and see if we can get you back on there give you a good push towards, uh, towards there. Do you, do you accept uh, 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 cryptocurrency? I heard you said stuff about crypto. So I'm a, I'm a, big, support, I'm a big supporter of cryptocurrency. Unfortunately, because of regulations, it gets a little tricky to accept it. And, and I was wondering it. about um, So the answer is no, for now, it's only fiat currency, uh, also known <laughs> as government promises. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I, but good news here, and actually fun fact for Indiana, uh, as an individual, there is no cap on how many government promises you can donate to a political campaign. So it's, there's no federal cap of $2,700. You can give until it hurts and keep on giving. Yeah, there you go. That's that's what we got to do. You know, we don't want the, you know, we got to be the change. So we got to get out there and send some money your way and uh, help out, you know, because man, if Indiana does, gets, gets you in there, that'd, that'd be glorious. I think it'll be like one of the first dominoes in the in getting us all free all over the place that's right if we can do it here we can do it anywhere yeah all right well thank you very much and uh, i want to say thanks to everybody for listening you know make sure you uh follow us subscribe listen wherever you listen to podcasts make sure you check out my album free people where you stream music and spread the spread the message of liberty with music and share the hell out of this podcast and let's help him get him elected Sean and John, thank you again for the privilege and opportunity of being here. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Bye.